This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 3, Beyond the Studio East Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Since this podcast is hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language. So if there are sensitive ears around you, be sure to pop in some headphones before you listen. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to drop in, in case you didn't notice, this is part one of the conversation. So be sure to tune in next week to listen to part two. We do this whenever an episode goes kind of long, rather than give you a super long episode, we break it into two halves. So half one is today, part two is next week. Hey, it's Amanda. I want to tell you about Change Lab, a long-form interview podcast that explores the transformative power of creativity. Hosted by Lauren M. Buckman, the show is produced by Art Center College of Design, a global leader in art and design education. Change Lab tells extraordinary true stories about regular people living their life through the lens of creativity, the kind you won't see on the news or read about online. Change Lab guests are artists, designers, and entrepreneurs from diverse sectors, including popular culture, high art, Silicon Valley, corporate America, and the emerging fields of social innovation. Change Lab just began its seventh season, which is dedicated to amplifying Black voices in a conversation around creating concrete, measurable action towards a more diverse and inclusive art and design community at Art Center and beyond. The world is one giant nation of creatives. Change Lab's objective is to shine a spotlight on the little and big dreams that comprise the artistic life of people who can't help but make something where before there was nothing. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy Change Lab wherever you listen to podcasts. On today's episode, we are talking with artist Jean Shin, who is based in Brooklyn and in upstate. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your work, your background, and kind of let people know about your creative journey thus far and kind of what got you to today as an artist? You know, just really broad strokes here, (laughs) but go as specific as you want. Sure. Um, Well, my practice um, involves doing large-scale, often site-specific works. They are a material exchange with either a community or participants in which I take a singular object um, that resonates within a site and have that build an incredible large-scale installation that often is then placed in the public. I went to Pratt Institute, um, which is where I currently teach, so an adjunct uh, professor there. You know, what kind of uh, journey should we explore? 
do you, do you have specific areas? Well, I, yeah, um, I saw that back in the early 90s, you were awarded an NFAA Presidential Scholar Award, which as any high school art student knows, is um, probably the most prestigious award you can receive uh, here in the States as a young person in the arts. So it seems like you were really on this path towards becoming an artist from a very young age. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about your early influences and exposure to art. You know, was this something that your um, family was really supportive? and encouraging of did you have early mentors that were sort of you know encouraging you down this path uh, yeah thank you so much for noting that I, I you know it's been such a long journey I forget my early years I'm not thinking about them necessarily in my own context I think about my you know contributions to the next generation I'm thinking about other young people mm. not my own history mm. um, but yes I started in the journey as a young person, very interested in always drawing, making things. But it was not encouraged, of course. I come from Asian background. It's like my parents are like academics. You know, we made huge sacrifices, do something that is productive and, of course, financially sound, which is the opposite of my journey as an artist. So um, they were not really on board with my pursuing it, except that they knew it made me happy. It engaged me. And um, so I did it in parallel to my academic studies. So it was always in my life and I always wanted to be an artist and have arts in, in whatever capacity it could be. I never imagined that I would become an artist because that was just not something in my family trajectory. And it was programs like Young Arts, which is the national program that selects the U.S. Presidential Scholars, uh, Scholastics, you know, all these early recognition awards that you do. And of course, my art teacher, you know, encouraged me to apply and I did. And then these... Um, awards and recognitions came, um, which really helped to validate my own voice at a, at a context that was not being explored, you know, um, from my family background. So um, it opened up, you know, doors for me. And that kind of early encouragement is um, incredibly valuable um, because of Mm self-confidence, but also because you then get to meet other people whose life that is, and it's not your own personal background. So, you know, currently I'm serving on the uh, board of Young Arts just because I know how important that was in the direction I chose to go um, because of this award. You know, it allowed me to really think of my future trajectory as an artist, but it also provided scholarship, you know, and then Pratt Institute came in and I won a uh, full uh, merit scholarship um, named as a Charles Pratt Scholar and, you know, things like that where, you know, my parents would not have made the tuition bill to help me in that pursuit of my dream. But when it's a full uh, free ride, they almost can't challenge me, you know? Um, So they allowed that path to go. (laughs) And so in some way, I had a long train on a path where these foundations, people who do the deep work to try to find young artists interested in arts who otherwise would not have pursued it. So I, I, I cannot thank them enough and still feel like that is my mission to try to give back to that community who are other young artists who don't have access. It, it's not in their life plan as far as their family is concerned that you are allowed to pursue this. And yet um, we're giving them permission to really um, imagine this world and this future for them and giving them as much support, love and care, right? 
Yeah, what an amazing full circle experience to now be working with Young Arts as a professional artist and then, of course, teaching at Pratt. I wondered also kind of going back in time if we could hear a little bit about your early career and perhaps when you first graduated from Pratt, either grad or undergrad, what was that time in your life like? Um, Maybe what were some of the early formative experiences for you in your career? Uh, Were you starting to show work right away? Uh, Were you working other jobs? Um, You know, what were those kind of first few years um, outside of school like for you? Well, I was studying painting and uh, to a certain degree, it, it, you know, I was influenced by such, such strong teachers in my life. And so I think that is a vocation that I'm pursuing now uh, because of its importance in my hold. But then it has a two-sided edge, you know, he was a painter. And so I just imagine I was a painter. I didn't think outside that. And so being really challenged and pushing that medium, realizing that it really wasn't the medium of my choice. It was just chosen for me. (laughs) And so during um, art school, in my own exploration, I sort of branched out and started to work with materials and other practices that I had long forgotten about, but that um, I was really challenging what it was that I was learning in art school and that maybe that being a student of art in that context was not really uh, what was meant to be. Part of it because, you know, art historical canons, like I'm not seeing myself represented, you know? And as a painter who was responding to the history of art, when you feel like I'm not in dialogue here, (laughs) I'm absent, you know? And it's not because I'm young, it's not because, you know, there's no one I'm in dialogue with, the dialogue is elsewhere and um, is um, an absence of people like me, you know? So I didn't see myself projected in that space. So I did feel like installation um, was a place that no one really, talked a lot about and shared with me and my education. So it felt freeing. And a lot of what um, I feel like my education was about having a training and discipline. But then once I learned the methodologies and looked critically at it, um, I started to question and I started to unravel and I had bigger questions. And so it led me not to continue the painting practice, but shift to installation and more sculptural found object work. And then trying to really unlearn things you know, that I felt like art school took for granted. And similarly, I came out of school. It was a time of recession, similar. And so young artists weren't expected to do anything, you know, be out there doing anything. You just were expected to do your work, you know, in whatever capacity. But there was no pressure to sell or to show. It was more like a a community of interested people having dialogue about art, Uh, And I think that was really formative because it was about relationship building, you know. So all of us pretty much went and found full-time jobs and that was totally normal, you know. Rent, of course, was affordable so we could also feel that there was um, many jobs that we can um, afford to take even if it wasn't very lucrative, you know. And then we did our our work and it didn't, the, the job didn't necessarily define who we were, you know. I did actually end up having a very interesting path 
I think part of it is that I work in these polarities. So like when I was studying painting, then I shifted to sculpture. And so when I was in fine arts, I shifted to art history. <laughs> you know, um, And again, partly because in the critiques, I felt that I really wanted to dive deeper into the history of like where this dialogue was happening and how artists were being placed in that history. And so I pursued a degree in art history, um, which I think was a little confusing for a lot of my professors and my peers because they were like, are you going to be an artist or are you going to be a historian or a curator, you know? And at the end of the day, you know, I pursued my curiosities. I felt like art history was fascinating to me. It was still vivid and alive and I learned so much and I wanted to just give myself the time to figure that out and uh, the pleasure of writing and researching. Um, so I did that work. And I also mentioned like this pivotal moment in the trajectory of my practice and my studies at Pratt was um, a friend of mine had asked me to join the student newspaper. It was like a, a magazine. You know, I was like an yearbook editor in high school, you know? So I was like, oh, I'm always interested in publications and, you know. And then when I was tapped into this role, it really shifted um, my world into the role of like leadership and the role of activism and really like journalism, the power of um, freedom of speech and getting into issues and content and and interviewing people because I was curious, because I wanted an answer. I wanted to put print something, you know, a statement by the important people in the community about a topic that we as uh, the students really felt were pressing and urgent. So that drove me into a path that I think really impacted my artwork, um, the kind of inquiry-based investigative, like research-based work that I start in my proposals and uh, my sites. And all those skills I learned from managing a, a newspaper, which is like, had like staff of 10, a budget of like 60, $50,000 from the school. So I was re- running a small business, you know, subsidized by and for and with the community and working with incredibly talented people uh, of my peers. So that modeling, you know, um, it's not something that I thought was, you know, something I was paying for in my education. It always felt distracted. Everyone said, oh, my God, when is your deadline? Because shouldn't you be in your studio? And I was like, I know, but this is so urgent, (laughs) you know, and whereas my art, I was going to always be there and I was always going to do it, you know. So the urgency of this kind of pursuit and being able to work under pressure and deadline and all of that and, and really challenging ourselves to kind of like a project-based practice, you know. And I think that Mm -hmm. really translates in my current way of working today, even. Um, In hindsight, of course, (laughs) because while I was doing doing it, it didn't feel uh, like it was something that I would consider as part of my umbrella for an artist. And then those skills translated, of course, into experiences when I applied for my job. So I had gotten a master's degree, a fine arts BFA, um, but the master's was in art history. And I really wanted to be in um, office space because I'd been working on that um, you know, desk job as an editor. And I felt very comfortable with like this collaborative process, organizing and putting things together. And so my first um, major full-time job was at, at the Whitney Museum in the curatorial department. And it was like a foot in the door of the art world in a way that I could never have imagined as a young artist. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like we talk with artists a lot about um, how the skills that we're developing in the studio can translate outside of that, like that ability to, you know, create something out of nothing and um, to sort of figure things out as we go along and that, you know, inquiry driven approach, but maybe not as often how skills that you're developing, maybe in completely other realms or even other careers or projects can be applied into, um, you know, building a sustainable practice as an artist. And so, it's great to hear about how your experience in publishing translated. And I'm also wondering because your, um, it seems like your desire for dialogue is really what brought you into the space of installation and sculpt- sculpture. Were you taking as community driven an approach as, as you are now in your work? Or was that something that also maybe carried over from publishing? It was probably there, although maybe I wouldn't have um, named it as such, you know, at the time. My awareness for it was more about relationship building and, um, yeah, just getting to, like, in journalism, truth, you know? (laughs) Um, You know, that sort of, you know, altruistic, you know, very, like, in your 20s, like, you just want answers, you know? And um, so you follow that path. And it was a wonderful journey in that. But then I realized that so much of the dialogue that I was having with other artists or with people outside the arts was something that um, I continue to be so captivated by. And I think that is true in my practice. I'm pursuing other subjects, uh, other fields, and then bringing them into my art practice. I think it's really teaching also has allowed me to think about community very differently you know so yeah every different parts of my experience in life has added to what defines a community and what I mean by that and it's it's not fixed you know I think in the beginning it was just relationships you know ones that in which we can have dialogue trust conversation you know Um, and then over time a community, I feel like, is a support system, you know, an ecosystem, something much mm-hmm. greater than yourself. I want to go back to your um, question about certain jobs uh, and the skills you learn, because I'm very clear in that I advise students to pursue jobs that they're truly interested in the environment um, and not necessarily the, the job you're hired to do you know, only, you know, because environment, Mm. you learn so much from and also the mission behind that organization or the company. And if you believe in that and want to contribute to that, then like you said, you're, it's a space of learning, right? Um, So the kinds of larger picture endeavor that the organization might be doing in gives you insight into a world, into a future, into a long-term plan. And also similarly, I think the set skills build on things that you don't necessarily have in your studio practice, you know, um, which will later, of course, be able to help you. And I think in um, the museum space, being able to conceive of exhibitions, being able to organize, you know, loans, the transport, the kind of the display work working with other people, um, trying to understand how education departments then talk about it with the public. You know, these are all conversations as a studio artist I would never have understood were important, if not uh, how to do that, you know. And so in my day job, it just allowed me to literally contribute and learn on the job, why it's important, how to do it well, how to do it better, you know, see shows that, you know, do it differently, what are different approaches and methodologies to that. And, you know, 
so making exhibitions became incredibly um, exciting for me as a new way of working, um, not just building objects, but really building spaces in which people come uh, to experience art. And in so many ways that then opened doors to my having museum shows. And of course, my work being in dialogue with curators um, who, you know, are similarly uh, thinking about the same issues. Yeah, it's what a amazing learning opportunity to get to pull that information over and apply it to your own work and making. And of course, in, in retrospect, I'm sure being able to connect the dots makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm wondering if in the moment, too, do you remember feeling like these things were all really interconnected? Or, you know, were there were there things that you were pulling over besides just the kind of exposure and, you know, absorbing the knowledge from your day job working at the Whitney into your, your own studio practice? Or what were some of the ways that those things were starting to connect or maybe doors that were starting to open on the artistic front through that? Well, I became extremely critical of my own work, <laughs> which is both a good thing and a really bad thing. You know, before I even gave myself the chance to explore and make things, I would shut them down in my mind. Like, that's not good enough. Like, work harder. This think You're comparing harder. all of your work yes. to the work in the Whitney <laughs> right away. So suddenly, you know, my critical lens for my own practice became editing out before I even allowed myself to create. You know, so it was both a blessing and also a curse um, as an artist. And then I realized that I needed to let myself also then take the day job off, put away those criteria and really be an artist where you get to explore, you get to fail, you get to not know, you get to continue to not know and still want to make whatever mess you want to make, you know, and out of that chaos, maybe a hint of something that feels like, Hmm, I'm getting somewhere, you know, and that to me was the real space where when that hunger kicked in again, I knew I needed to like leave my day job, (laughs) you know, and go to a space and another job that would be much more creatively and stimulating in that way, as opposed to the critical space. At first I wanted the critical space. And then Mm -hmm. of, of course it wore me down to say, well, this doesn't help my studio practice at all now, you know, because I was seeing it through that lens only. And of course that lens only um, is not always helpful in the moment of creation. You know, in the moment of creation, you have to have doubt. In the moment of creation, you have to follow your curiosity and uh, not look back and not really even have the perspective. And that's why we're just sort of like, driven and mad to do the work we do. And I love that. I think we should treasure that part of our artistic creativity. Yeah. So once you made this decision that you needed to maybe seek out a different environment that was more conducive to um, to your own creative process, where did you go from there? And what kind of maybe support were you starting to find for your work, whether institutional support or community support? You know, were you finding funding for projects? I'm just kind of curious to get into, you know, how you started to make those transitions into focusing more fully on your art making. Well, I went from part, uh, full-time to part-time, right? That's the carve-out time and space, okay, yeah. right? And also then to say you're, you're getting a leap of faith, right? You're losing regular income, 
right, to do something else. And so I really felt like there was something happening in my studio. I was applying to a lot of residencies and opportunities. And one of the critical ones was getting into Skowhegan after many, many attempts, right? Um, Getting that letter and just going, oh my God, wait, someone sees me. Um, And then uh, saying that like, that's a door opening and I'm not going to go back to the security of a full-time job. I'm just going to bust into that window and try to support myself um, as an artist and work only part-time you know so it's like making making that little shift you know mental space and so teaching became the other um, avenue Um, one of my former professors asked me if I was interested in teaching and of course I gave that dream up a long time ago thinking adjunct teaching I've heard so competitive and blah 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 you know but I just decided that it was important for me again like we were talking about just being in a more creative space of uh, a generative space as opposed to the presentation mode that was happening at a museum and then in that teaching it was another whole mm-hmm. shift thinking about pedagogy thinking um, about the community of the classroom very very different modes of working but it al- allowed me the energy as well to then develop projects so then I started to get exhibition opportunities at nonprofits like uh, art in general exit art artists space. And what was so interesting was that they were open to these large-scale installations. I was, felt like the premium was the walls, and so that's the space that painters and photographers really occupied, and then no one knew what to do with the space on the floor. So a lot of my early installations were like these massive materials um, and engagement with the spaces of the gallery. But it almost like felt like it um, gave a space that for people to notice because the scale then ho- had to occupy uh, such large um, spaces in New York. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to think about carving out space for yourself. I was going to ask you, so some of these opportunities to exhibit your work, were they beginning to emerge organically out of other things you were involved in, like teaching or um, residency programs, or were these things that you were actively applying to or kind of, you know, proactively kind of seeking out opportunities to show your work? And what was that process like? I was actively applying, you know, and what's great with the nonprofits is that they have an open call, they have a registry, they have curators looking to see new work, and they really don't necessarily um, require or want experience. They want to show fresh new work, if not the first venue, the first showing. And so I really believe in the people who are, um, if you apply, there's always someone looking on the other end, you know, and this person being someone who is a juror, a young curator, even the intern who will eventually go on. And if you keep applying, they notice, you know, and I felt like I had applied to so many things on a regular basis. Um, I felt like I had 10 or 15 applications going at the same time, you know, one comes in the no, you send out three more. you know, and hope that something lands. And, you know, over a number of years, I felt like, you know, you plant these seeds and I wish the, the feedback loop would be sooner, but you just, you can't wait until you hear back from something, you just keep applying, right? And it was probably like three or five years where then suddenly it felt like my applications and my reach outs had actually arrived in certain people's eyes and that they were finally calling me back and interested, you know? 
So, you know, and I keep saying, well, if you were looking at my work for three years, why wasn't there our email? (laughs) Why didn't you say, hello, I'm looking at your work? You know, it was just dead silence, you know, but again, um, I I was fine and just feeling like I was developing my my own work and my own pace. And if an opportunity came, it would be great. But it wasn't something that was necessarily um, something that was driving the work. Um, It was just the studio practice, you know. Yeah, I think that's important to hear for a couple of reasons. Um, One, because you were you were supporting yourself through teaching and through working part time. So you'd kind of alleviated, um, I imagine, some of the financial pressure for your work to fully support you while you were still developing that voice. Um, But also just that, you know, there's an incredible amount of persistence involved in continuing to apply and continuing to put your work out there when when you're not getting any of that feedback for sometimes years at a time, but really still looking at that as a form of relationship building and with the knowledge that, you know, those people on the other side are are looking at the work and that, you know, there's a chance they might remember it the next year or if you apply again. And so I think that's that's important to to hear and, and helpful that, you know. I'll say that internally, you know, if you apply again and again, you see your applications last year and you go, oh, this was, yeah, I would reject me too. Like I could do this much yeah. better now, <laughs> you know? And so I think uh-huh. there's so much about like practice, you know, and that mm-hmm. applications also require practice and due diligence and persistence, you know, just like a relationship, <laughs> you could get better at applying. And I think that is something that you learn at a day job, you know, that it, it's work and you do it. And you get through it. And the next time something like that happens, like, oh, this is so much easier because I've done that. You know, so the learning curve on yeah, every yeah. application just gets easier. So, yeah, you're in it for a while. And just to see it as like, you know, if you practice the piano, you have to do the scales, <laughs> you know, um, until you realize that it's not uh, that difficult, you know. Um, but you realize when um, you come back to that that application the year after, you know, you, you get um, insight into your own work and how you might apply better this time around, or you might try a different strategy or a different body of work or, you know, and that, and that, that was really encouraging. Um, But in the meantime, I also had a uh, important like peer crit group, you know, so it was not in silence. Um, You know, I kept my community very close. And so my um, friends who, and I would get together every month and I probably had two different crit groups with different personalities, different um, um, kind of reason to be together. Um, And that really helped me, you know, it was a check-in with, people that whose opinions I valued more than let's say outside validation, you know, until we all started to, you know, get our shows. Then it felt like, oh, we're so busy, <laughs> you know, now we're yeah. just going to each other's openings uh, and, and to be able to celebrate like the work that we saw in the studio, the work that was becoming, the work that was being realized to the, there it is and being appreciated by others. Um, so it really became a growing support system um, from the internal to a, a, a group of friends uh, getting together to support each other to then realizing that we were we were a little mini art world, you know, out there as emerging artists practicing. Yeah. And were these artists that you um, had attended grad school with or just people that you met through engaging with the New York art scene? Mostly right out of grad school. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, I had a group, um, Missy from undergrad, and then another group from grad. So each one had a different personality for that reason. Mm-hmm. I wanted to jump ahead a little bit and um, 
and hear more about your experience uh, working with these institutions or um, museums or nonprofit spaces um, now that you've had so many shows at so many so many different places and maybe from from those early experiences when maybe you were pulling from that experience at the Whitney and to now what what are some kind of pivotal learning moments or things that you um, often share with uh, early career artists that you know would be helpful to know about working with um, spaces at that scale? Well, some of the behind the scene is really nice to know that um, even though mm-hmm. art we're trying to imagine the, the space, right? It's always like the white cube and being the center of the artist, you know, headlining. But actually, you know, there's a larger ecosystem. And I was one of those artists behind the scene in the back office, you know, doing all the labels and all, you know. So yeah. you forget that as, as you as an artist show up and are invited to be the headliner, there are all these other people who are your support staff, you know? And so as an installation artist where I didn't have the privilege to just ship my work and be done, I literally had to drive the work out of the work. I didn't install the work. I was there day in, day out, you know? So I became like the staff, even though they didn't pay me to do the work. I was there as as much as anyone else was. Um, And so then I developed those relationships with the people who were, you know, the assistant curator or not the director director or the intern or the associate, blah, 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 you know, these educators who come by and even the janitors, you know, and I think those are important um, relationships you build and to really get to know an uh, organization, an institution, uh, you know, who has your back, you know, who's like totally checked out. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so in some way you understand the working of the good, the bad and the ugly of an institution. And I think that's a really, that to me was how I know these institutions inside out, right? And even if I'm the invited guest, my projects are sort of so labor intensive that they forget I'm even there for a while. Oh, Jean's just working. (laughs) You know, (laughs) she's there again. It's like, oh, can we just leave you the keys? Like you're the last one here, you know? So I just felt like I was the one who came and then my if it was a group show artists would come and be like who's the curator and who's the director and they would ask me you know or where's the bathroom and they would ask me you know because <laughs> I felt like let me navigate you through the space um so that's actually both you know it's the time you invest to know an organization and of course then I walk away not just with one relationship or an empty institution I walk away with the relationships with people and they end up um, still being part of my community Uh, they go off to different institutions and we know each other back when you know and I think that those are kind of pivotal ways in in which um, like how we find ourselves in in a certain situation and, and to imagine how it can grow into different relationships sort of thinking long-term. Yeah, and I mean, knowing how collaborative and kind of community-driven your work is, it's not surprising to hear that it seems to all come back to relationships, but I feel like this is aligned with conversations we've had with other artists too, and many that we've we've interviewed on the podcast that also, um, you know, have shown in museum spaces or, or had large-scale exhibitions, you know, they might also be working as art handlers or have previously worked, you know, I, I used to work part-time on the frontline staff. Staff, um, at a museum here in San Francisco. And, you know, we've talked with artists that are curating shows, you know, simultaneously, they're doing these other roles. So I think just that 
that recognition that, you know, all of these people are, are wearing many hats and that they're, you know, involved in their, their own communities and kind of art spaces and in different ways. And that if you can sort of look at everything as an opportunity for relationship building, it really sounds like that's how things had, had started to grow for you too. Absolutely. I love that. I love that we're echoing um, and building on these conversations because we have been on every side of the, <laughs> the positioning around, um, you know, cultivating an, uh, a healthy ecosystem, which means that we're um, feeding it regularly and supporting each other. Um, so it's sort of like, it's your show now and let me help you and what, what needs to happen for that. And other times it's, it's my show and I'm going to um, want that similar mutual uh, support, you know, and mm-hmm. if you've given it, then it comes back to you, which is so lovely. You had touched on this a little bit earlier um, and I want to keep talking about community because I think, especially now in a time where it's so difficult to have community, it's important to try to find ways to continue to create it and participate in it and I see so many like young artists now trying to find ways to foster community within their work and and finding ways to use their work to speak to community issues Um, so I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on that and and how you approach that within your own work. So I guess with my you know my engagement with communities I sort of take the lead from an organization as to what they define as community um, and and see if it matches up with mine. And oftentimes there's kind of a disconnect, right? So they want me sometimes to just bring in a community. And that's, you know, it just seems so uh, misguided in some way because we're talking, are we talking about an audience or community, (laughs) you know? And oftentimes they ignore the people who are right there and kind Mm -hmm. of seek out an audience you know, so so for me, when I work with an institution, I just kind of look like, well, who's here? Who's with us? Who's willing to do the work and make a project happen? You know, and what are the resources that are being not tapped, you know, or underutilized? Um, and so, you know, in some way, I invite those people who have been sort of like marginalized in their same organization, <laughs> you know, to take part of the creative process or to centered around the conversation. So, you know, my work has often been about making um, things that are uh, leftover or so banal that it's not even seen um, and making them more visible and making the ordinary feel like it has purpose and meaning in our life. And I feel that the same kind of strategy works with people, you know, and being an, uh, a woman and being a minority um, person who um, often is in a room and never seen, you know, never acknowledged half the time. So I know what that feels like. And so I, um, when someone invites me to do a project, I'm sort of inviting others who really hasn't had the chance to be recognized even within their own, quote, organization, if not what I call family, you know, their own community. Um, So it sort of just takes the center, not from me, but to share that um, and have it overlap, I think. And that's what I I define community, like who's here, not who can we reach, you know? And uh, a lot of people, you know, education programs used to call like outreach. And I was like, who are we reaching out to, you know? (laughs) Um, And it always felt like, is it kind of like going fishing? Like, 
one day you get some, one another day you don't, you know. And I just really felt like, why not feed the people who deserve feeding within your own space, you know? Like let's nurture ourselves, and you know, if we're thriving, then yes, people then look toward us and be like, what's going on over there, you know, and get so excited. Um, I love that story of the stone soup. You know, this is an old, you know, uh, wartime story around poverty and, and where, you know, campsite, uh, there's a village and everyone is um, hoarding their food and uh, a soldier comes and says, oh, can I share some food? You know, I'm passing by and no one would share his food. And then he just decides that he's going to start a pot of uh, soup in the middle of town and all he has is pot and water, you know, and he's like, mm, this is so good. Oh my God. And he's like watching it boil and it's like, so taking so much time, all the villagers are sort of looking like, what's going on over there, you know? Uh, and he goes, this soup is so good. If only I had like potatoes, it would just go like over the top, you know? And so someone goes, well, I have potatoes. I could give you some potatoes for this amazing soup that would you share, you know? And then suddenly the story is that everyone has the next thing is carrots, the next thing is garlic, the next thing is onions, the next, and then the whole community has shared all their resources and, and really the communal idea of celebrating what you have, but what you felt like you couldn't share, that you couldn't afford to share, um, even with a stranger. And I feel like I'm the stranger who comes into these communities and I'm just saying, I have nothing but like a vessel. <laughs> you know, and it's empty. And I know you guys all have things that you don't even recognize that are amazing, that other people don't recognize what you have, and that you don't even offer to each other. But let me be the catalyst, the project in which we share our skills, share our insights, share the deep histories, and get to know each other in a different capacity than maybe you do. Um, because we're so siloed in our jobs, in our statuses, in our uh, precarity, if our needs to self be a self-preservationist and are holding on to certain jobs, you know? Uh, so it's very political. And then I think art comes in and becomes that empty vessel, a potential to just imagine what I think is like such a delicious way of interacting with each other, um, even though all of us can't really afford to share too much, but we have a lot of unutilized resources that we don't think of as being necessarily valuable, but others do, you know? So we can offer it. We, there's much more that we can offer than we think. That's it for this half of the conversation. Tune in next week to listen to part two. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 